the work of the manager of a household. This is a father's work. All the time, fathers do this kind of thing. Yeah, do you know how much of a pain it is to make your kids eat the food that is in front of them? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Father has to make the decision how much work he's going to put into that job. This amount of work, this amount of work, this amount of work. A father's got to do that despite his own preference in the matter. Because his preference might be, let him eat Cheetos. I don't care. Mountain Dew and Cheetos every day. That might be his preference. But if he's a good father, despite his own preference, he has to train his children to do the things they ought to do. Right? So this is the difficult work of eldering, pastoring, deaconing in a church. There are a thousand opinions among the 30 or so people who are here. The work of eldering and pastoring is to get everyone to kind of move to the same rhythm. And you see that in households, right? Households that are run well, fathers who are doing a good job, their kids may be all over the map personality-wise, but if their family is kind of all moving sort of in sync together despite all the different personalities and quirks, then he is managing his household well. This is the high duty and the high calling of pastoring and eldering. This is the kind of thing you should be praying for in our elders to come and our elders currently. This work is not easy. And you have men here, I brought them up last week, who have been doing an excellent job, though they are not called elders and they are not ordained. It is difficult work that they have done. It's difficult work, and they have done a good job. And this is one of the things that should mark the household of God, is good men who lead well the house of God. Because why would they lead well? Why, why does a father care about doing these things and not letting his kids eat Cheetos and Mountain Dew? Because he loves his children. Because these men love you. Because I love you. That's why I want to do this. And then you think of uh, why God would want us to act certain ways. It's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us that he wants us to do certain things. And you all know this somewhat intuitively, right? We know that it is more loving to do certain things and less loving to do other things, that it's hateful to do certain things. Um, But we still need to be told most of those things. We need to be trained up that those things are actually not okay. One of the first things you'll see in disciplining children is their intuitive nature to conceal and lie, right? They know what it means to cover up at a very early age. We're very good at that as adults, too. Concealing, covering over, pretending as though the thing that happened didn't happen. It's the difficult work of a father to say that thing happened. Now we've got to get the truth. Now we've got to get down. We've got to get below the surface of what we say happened and actually get down to what's actually happening and then deal with it. These are the things that the church is to be working towards. And we'll see that. We're going to walk through the next few chapters, and we're going to see um, how difficult that work is, but then also what what your job is to help one another in this. Uh, This is Daryl's drumbeat that he's been drumming, right? Persevere to the end. Help one another persevere to the end, to get to the gate, right? That's, That's what we're doing for one another. 
That's what you are doing for each other. That's the mark of a household of God managed well. Is that instead of biting and devouring, we're loving one another. Instead of being at odds with one another, we're together. Despite differences. Despite all kinds of things that might put us at odds. We work together through those things. We love one another despite those things. We forbear with one another. So then, what is the household of God? The household of God is anywhere that the truth of God is upheld and proclaimed. Rightly. So for a long time, hundreds and hundreds of years, we have defined the church of God as with two marks. The th- what, what is the church? Well, the, the first is kind of a taken for granted. You have to have more than just one person, right? You get to church is at least a couple people, right? That comes from all over. I mean, Jesus explicitly says it, where two or three are gathered. I am with them. That's in the context of church discipline, by the way. He's saying where two or three are gathered and there's conflict, I am with you in the midst of that. Um, so, yeah, there's community, but then the two marks are the right preaching of the word. So is the word proclaimed? Is the truth upheld? And that's not just in the pulpit. Okay, That's not just when I'm preaching is the truth upheld. But it's all the time. We all have, including myself, various points at which we are not in alignment with the truth. Our job is to keep helping one another stay on the path of truth. Truth is where the church is, right? We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are the thing that that proclaims what is true to the world. That's the first mark. The second mark is the right discipline of the church, and that comes through the right administration of the sacraments, right? So we're going to partake of one this morning, the Lord's Supper. The other is baptism. So the right marks of the church are the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, which is proper discipline in the church. The sacraments are to be administered to those who are in good standing in the church, which means they're not to be administered to those who are disobedient in the church. They're not to be administered to those who are outside the church. And that doesn't mean just outside our small congregation here. It means those who are not Christians, should not be partaking in these elements. And you read this book of 1 Timothy, and you see that those two things, truth and discipline, are the marks of a household managed well. So it's full of truth. We're not lying to one another. We're not deceiving one another. We're constantly pointing one another to the true things of God. And we are keeping ourselves disciplines under the sacraments. Now, discipline under the sacraments, you kind of go categorically, right? So the first discipline of ourselves is self-discipline, okay? Do I think I am following God's word myself? Where are the places that I have sinned? This happens on a daily basis, confession of sins. This happens, hopefully, when I'm preaching, you'll go... Yeah, not there. And hopefully you'll right the ship 
You'll self-discipline. You'll hear the word. You'll correct. You'll repent. Everything goes well. Self-discipline. Second form of discipline is one to another. Um, So-and-so does so-and-so. You see it. You say, hey, I'm not sure you should be doing that. Second form of, of discipline, one to another. Most of church discipline are those two things. Self-discipline and just gentle, regular correction of brothers and sisters in Christ. Third form of church discipline, right? That didn't go well. (laughs) That brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister thing didn't go well. Third form of church discipline, bringing in witnesses. Fourth form of church discipline, explaining it to the church. This argument that we thought was going to be figured out is not figured out. Here it is. And you see that in the scriptures. Uh, Paul says, uh, now I've forgotten their names because I forgot to write it down. He names two women. He t- says, tell them to stop fighting. That's, that's, that's the fifth form, right? Self-discipline, brother to brother, with witnesses, be- or fourth form, before the church. All of us need to encourage this situation to get resolved. The fifth form of self of discipline is well in in between three and four somewhere is where you say to someone, "This thing is not resolved. You can't partake of the sacraments. You, you need to be resolved with one another to come to the table. If you can't forgive one another, then the Lord will not forgive you." That's straight from Jesus' mouth, right? That's part of the Lord's prayer. So the removal of the sacraments. The fifth form, the final form, the form that is rarely practiced in the church because we don't ever want to do it because we pray and hope and want God in his kindness to keep us from doing it is excommunication. Saying to someone, your sin continues to be there. You won't, you won't repent. Non-repentance is not an option for the church of God. It belongs to us. That is our faith. Non-repentance has no part in the church of God. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that means we sin, which means we have to repent. And so this is, those two things, the right preaching and then the discipline of the body, are the two things, the marks of our church. The church of the living God. The living God. Have we considered what it means to live before the face of the God who rules the world? Who made the world and all that is in it? Who commands everything that happens in it? We like to blame everybody else for all the things that happen. And sometimes we blame ourselves for the things that happen. Have we considered the fact that God is doing things? And that we ought to be fearful of that God who is doing these things. You know, the, this coronavirus deal, right? We've done a lot to try and mitigate things. Masks, seating, spacing, whatever. And still, that virus came on. Beginning of October, right? It, it was way up in April, came down over the summer. And then middle, like early to mid-October starts doing this. Why is that? Why did that happen? 
Well, you can blame all. You can blame a thousand people. You can blame a thousand things that we did. You can say it's because we wore masks. You can say it's because we didn't wear masks. You can say it's because we met together. You can say it's because we didn't meet together. You can say a thousand things, but the reality is we live in God's world, and he does as he pleases. He is a living God. He is not a clockmaker. He didn't wind up this world and let it go. He's here with us now. And he is doing something that we ought to pay attention to. And that thing is, lots of people are dying. Whatever the reason, however you view that, we need to wake up to the fact that we live in God's world. Our church is part of that. And so when we think of what is our duty to God, a big part of declaring the truth, being a support and buttress of the truth, is saying loudly, clearly, God rules this world and all that is in it. There is nowhere where his voice doesn't go out. There is nowhere not under his dominion and power. And so one of the best ways for our church to continue to proclaim the truth is to say God owns and rules the world. The, the second thing, we, we often want to reduce the truth to a single point. That the only job of the church is to proclaim the single point of the gospel, the pinnacle, the actual peak of the good news, which is Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that is the pinnacle. That is the top. That is the thing. But we forget that there's a mountain on each side of that that got us there. That the truth of God is the gospel, but the gospel is much bigger than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the top. That's the thing that we get to, but there's all kinds of other stuff that are also true, that are also good, that are also called the gospel. So, this is from another book that Paul wrote to the, the city of Colossae. Colossians, right? We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth, the gospel. Which has come to you, just as in the whole world it also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow beloved bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, you just listen to that. There's a lot that he packs into what this truth means, what it does. So the truth of the church that we're declaring, that we're proclaiming, that we're upholding, that we're buttressing, is not simply Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's everything that God has ever done in the world. 
and is still doing. We as Christians have the knowledge of God that is sufficient for salvation right right here in a way that is unheard of before two millennia ago, 2,000 years ago. The final speaking of God through his son Jesus Christ, the apostolic witness, the fact that they wrote down what it means that Jesus came and died and rose again, is why we exist as the church. It's to proclaim that, to stick true to it, to not veer from it. And so wherever we have a church that veers off into into la-la land, who gets off onto the sidetracks, who doesn't maintain the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he has done, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And so that is what we're supposed to do in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So we need to know who God is, what he has done, and that will affect our conduct in our house. Uh, This morning in Sunday school, talking about similar things. Uh, God is our Father if we are in his house. And we should want to please our Father. Right? And how will we know what pleases our Father? Well, he, in his kindness, has told us. He's not a cryptic Father, right? Some of us had fathers who were more clear in their wants and desires, some less. But we all kind of learned what makes our father happy. Some of us had good fathers. Some of us had bad fathers. Our father in heaven is the best father. He is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. He is father. We are his children. And he says, children, children, this is what makes me happy. This is what makes me happy. That you behave yourselves in my house, in this way, in these things. And a lot of those are the things that Paul lays out for character traits of elders and deacons. Uh, I said it once, I'll probably say it many more times until I'm dead. Larry McCall, who was here, said it to me. What must be true of an elder should be true of every Christian. So you read through those things. What pleases God for an elder Well, you can bet your money that's going to please God for you. How should you conduct yourselves in the household of God? Be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Manage your own household well. You must be above reproach with those outside the church so they will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Do those things which God requires of elders and you can be sure that your conduct in the household of God is good. Don't do those things and good elders who are good fathers will say to you, your conduct is not pleasing. This is what we should do in the household of God. This is what you are doing. This is what we should do. Um, And then, you might think that this last statement, I'm going to have to end soon. Oh, goodness. 
So this last statement, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. I've talked about this often, the fact that our faith is full of mystery. Um, Here it is, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And notice he doesn't say great is the mystery of the gospel. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of Christian living. Great is the mystery of what it means to walk in the face of God. What is this mystery? To walk rightly before God? To be godly? Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's the gospel in its nutshell form, right? That's the peak. That's the pinnacle. That's the thing. And that's the mystery of godliness. How do we become more godly? How does godliness work itself out in our lives? Well, we actually believe these things, that Jesus really was manifested in the flesh, that he really was born of a virgin, that he really did grow up, that he really did suffer, that he really did cry, that he really did get tempted, that he really did bleed. Because we have a faithful high priest who knows our every weakness. We actually believe that. That helps us to be godly. That's a, that's a mysterious thing. How does knowing that Jesus became flesh help us become more godly? I'm not exactly sure. It's a mystery. Somehow, God uses the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh. That true thing, when we dwell on it, when we think about what it means, changes us. Same thing. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The way generally I think this means is that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, as Romans tells us, the Spirit rose him from the dead and declared that he was the Son of God. He was vindicated by the Spirit, justified by the Spirit. Seen by angels. We sang, I think, in all three songs this morning, that the angels sing about him. And in Revelation chapter 5, when he makes his grand re-entrance into heaven, the angels are blown away with a lamb who looked as though he had been slain. Think about that. And it changes you. Dwell on that. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. The fact that our gospel, which started in this little bitty piece of land in the Middle East, Judea, is now everywhere in the world proclaimed believed on that is mind-blowing that happened before the age of the internet before the age of the telephone before the age of the automobile the gospel was everywhere taken up in glory they saw him go i mean it really didn't happen he He was here, and then he was taken up into the clouds, and the the apostles are standing there going, Did you? Do you have any idea? And the angel has to come and say, Why are you standing there like that? He's coming back, okay? Get going. Because they were just dumbstruck by the side of the Savior of the world ascending into heaven. So here Paul has laid out a few truths of the gospel. And if we take those, this mystery of godliness will happen. Um, This is from Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and sacrifice, 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we renew our minds with the truths of the word. Day by day, week by week, year by year, reviewing, renewing, saying, no, God, Jesus really did come in the flesh. That really happened. He really was seen by angels. He really is proclaimed among the nations. People everywhere really do believe. And he was taken up into glory. He sits at the right hand of the Father. That kind of meditation, that kind of thing, changes us. It renews our mind. And by renewing our mind, we are able to determine what the will of God is. What is the will of God for your life? Godliness. Sanctification. How do we know what those things are that make us sanctified? Renew our minds in the truth. And we will know what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the work of the church. This is, this is what we are here to do. Um, a final story, and then we're going to take communion. Um, I know a church that has very nice formal dishes for events, weddings, that sort of thing. Very nice. I don't know how much they're worth. Worth a lot of money. I mean, like real China, okay? I was at this church for a total of about seven and a half years. Do you know how many times that stuff was out of the cupboard? Zero times. There were two women in the church who had the key. Nobody else. That, I'm not talking about, hey, we should have fine china and use it. I'm saying they locked that stuff up because they thought it was too precious to be used. The gospel is not that. It is the most precious truth in the world. And it is meant to be on display, to be used, to be dirtied, to be spread around, to have it filled up, passed around, made communal. We are not a church who locks it away. We use the fine china of the gospel. We actually get it out of the cupboard and we say, have you seen this stuff? It's got gold around the edges, real gold. And we're eating off of it. Like, that, that does something to you. If you've ever used real fine china, you're like, this must be a really important meal, right? The gospel is that. Every day, every day is an important meal. We have the fine china. God incarnate, dead, buried, raised again. There is no truth in the world that compares the costliness of that truth. Let's be about proclaiming it. We don't lock it away. We say it with gladness and boldness to one another and to everyone else. That's the, that is the household of God being a pillar and buttress of the truth of the living God. The living God who rules and reigns. Okay? I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you that you are here with us this morning. Thank you that your word goes out and it accomplishes all the things that you have for it. We pray, Father, that it have a good effect on our hearts. That it will return to you uh, with happiness and gladness and and godliness in our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.
I remember.
pretty cut and dry, not a lot of stuff. Think more on what your sin has done to our Savior. Be more sober about your sin. It wasn't worse than and better than. It's actually worse than because you've had longer to think about it, to know the gospel, to realize the truth. And so the fact that your thought about whatever isn't as bad as your deed 30 years ago in one sense doesn't make your sin any less than another. And so when you come to the table, come in soberness. Come, come thinking and judging and saying to yourself, do, do I have the gift of life in me? Right? So this is, this is how Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. Must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You are required, when you come to the table, to think on your sins. It's a requirement of our God. This is what pleases Him in this house. It's for you to go that and that and that and that and that. All of that should keep me from this table. And then what does He say? You must examine yourself. And in so doing, in the examining, in the thinking, I'm not worthy. He is to eat of the bread and drink. When you examine and you think, I'm not worthy, not worthy, he says, now you come. You are unworthy, and I don't care. I have made you worthy. My blood is sufficient for you. My body is sufficient for you. Come, eat. Receive my grace. Receive my help. Receive my love. It's for us if we know that we are sinners. And if we know that, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he says to us. What a good, good Savior we have. What a good Father we have. Who would be so kind to us when we don't deserve it. Who would walk us at the table, not looking over our sins, not looking past our sins, not pretending like they don't exist, but saying, Yeah, that's true. Hey, you examined yourself and you did that stuff, I know. You, you deserve death. But my son died. So you don't have to. He tasted death. So you will not in the kingdom to come. That's an amazing thing. This is the meal for us as a body. This is for our household. This is part of the house rules. You come to this table you declare, I am his, he is mine. And so doing, you say, also, I will declare this truth. I will be godly. I will live as though God lives and I live before Him. So let's take this morning and believe that this supper is for us. And Jesus, or Paul, writing, says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body. Broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper. 
saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you take it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do declare the Lord's death until he comes. And he will come. He is coming. Come and we'll serve the bread and we'll eat together after you serve. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that His death means our life. Thank you that His body was broken and not ours. Father, we thank you. We ask you to help us to participate this morning in the broken body of our Lord Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but
Christ's blood shed for you. Thank you. Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us. We thank you that you are alive. That you are not.